Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast with me, Dominic Frisbee. And today I'm in the pub. I'm sitting in the pub with two of the wisest people I know. One of them is Dr. John, Dr. John Wustencroft, who, of course, you know from the Substack as Dr. John. He's been writing on the Substack for a year now uh, about investment trusts and sensible investment. So hello, Dr. John. Hi, nice to see you. And also sitting with us is Charlie Morris, who writes the Bite Tree newsletter, B-Y-T-E, Bite Tree. Somebody started banging in the background. That's just what you want when you're doing a podcast. And as uh, a former HSBC fund manager, managed the, what was the name of the fund you managed, Charlie? Uh, absolute Return Fund. And how much did you have on the management? Uh, $3 billion. In old school money? Yeah, in old money. With, with $3 billion, really was $3 billion, don't it? <laughs> So great stuff. And the reason I've got these two wise heads here is for a purpose. That is, we are trying to design. I came up with the idea of the do F all portfolio, a portfolio of assets where you do not have to do anything. You don't have to keep looking at company results and looking at your screen every day and worrying and selling this one and doing that one. It's a portfolio that you can invest and leave. But we decided that to do proper F4 is not quite right. We all like to tinker a little bit. There are times, for example, when you want to be in oil and energy, a time such as now, and perhaps a time when you don't want to be in oil and energy. And with that in mind, we've rebranded the DFA portfolio as the DVL portfolio, the do very little portfolio. And it's a, it's a low maintenance portfolio, and we're going to be constantly monitoring it on this substack. Now, we each have different opinions about what should be in that portfolio, and we'll come to the asset allocation in due course. But, um, John, you wanted to start off the conversation with, with why it's so important to do to have a low-maintenance portfolio and talking about there was one company that had a 100-year portfolio that you never had to change. Tell us about that. Uh, well, uh, Saxo Bank have this idea of a hundred-year portfolio that you would maybe rebalance every every year. Artemis have had similar ideas, um, but I think that where we are now, we've come to the end of an era that really started in 1982, where bond yields have been falling for over 40 years. And I just don't think we can look historically anymore and do all sorts of sort of clever statistics to, in quotes, prove that our portfolio is going to have certain sort of volatility criteria or return criteria. I think we've sort of entered a new era, and I don't think we can... I think it's generally widely accepted we can't look at 60-40 portfolios anymore, 60% equity, 40% bonds. Uh, I think we'd all accept at this table those are out, and we need to think where should we be allocating our assets given that what's happened in the recent history, I mean, recent meaning 40 years, probably isn't going to give us direction for the next 30 or 40. We've got all sorts of um, new uh, ideas around at the moment to do with climate change. ESG has obviously been around. There's this, in my opinion, massive disconnect between the sort of biophysical reality of, of uh, resource extraction needed for the green transition, issues with extracting oil and gas, and what's happening in the financial markets. And I think we're just in a new era. We need to think really carefully about how we would define what sort of assets we want to be invested in. And I just don't think we can, despite Warren Buffett's sort of amazing skills, we can just put all our money in something like the S&P 500 and go to sleep. I, I, I think we should always have some allocation to America. I recently wrote about that in your substat. 
but we just can't be that agnostic about the markets. I uh, saw a presentation by Mark Farber years and years ago in which he advocated a portfolio that would be 25% equities, 25% real estate, 25% gold, 25% bonds. Um, and that was a portfolio that was sort of echoed by Dylan Grice. He used to have his cockroach portfolio. Um, tell us about that, Charlie, the Moore portfolio. You know a bit about that. Yeah, but let's go, let's go back uh, one stage to the Old Testament because we've got the Talmud. And the Talmud, you know, they had a three-part portfolio was, you know, made, made each man uh, have one-third of his, um, his wealth in, 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 in land, uh, one-third in business, uh, and one-third in gold. And that's a lovely idea, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So do you happen to own bonds? Yes. Actually, it might have been some cash in there as well. I can't remember. We haven't got it slightly wrong. Well, gold was cash. Uh, gold was cash, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a simple idea, and I think that was probably the first historic reference to diversification and thinking like a, a modern banker. Uh, but then the, the uh, Higgins Moore portfolio came along, and that was looking at gold or one of the cheaper um, precious metals at 25%, looking at the dogs of the world or the dogs of the Dow, i.e. the cheap big stocks that they could find. I think he was using the highest yield from the Dow or the highest yield from the, you know, the equivalent of some global large cap index. Um, just put together with some long, some long bonds and some some intermediate bonds, and, and that simple idea has done very well. But of course, the last year would have been last year or two would have been pretty pretty devastating. Uh, Do you agree with John that we're in something of a new era? Well, it's hard to imagine we go back to the old era because I think the outcome of what we're experiencing now is a result of the old era. You know, clearly, clearly we've got far too much debt in the world and the the the, the money printing and all these things. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's chaos. We must have come to the end of the line um, in many parts of what is technically possible in financial markets. Um, I've always been a believer in you sort of diversify to protect what you have, but you go all in on one if you're looking to grow what you have, and you sort of have to hope that you get that one right because if you diversify you know while you might not be decimated in the wrong kind of market you're still you're never going to make three times your money in a year but let's say you go all in on uranium or all in on bitcoin and you happen to catch a, a trend that's the way where you make money do you have any thoughts on that gents yeah absolutely because um you know the, the old set the old saying is don't have all your eggs in one basket but of course the richest people in the world have done precisely that <laughs> so you know the, the idea of wealth management is to be diversified, looking for uh, good returns, hopefully to beat the market a little if, you're, if, you're, if you've done a good job, but, but not great returns. Great returns can only come from concentrated portfolios. That's absolutely true. If you go on. I think there's a bit of selection bias going on there because maybe the, great, the wealthiest people in the world have got all their eggs in, in, in one basket, but also there's a whole bunch of bankrupt people that had all their eggs in one basket and all of those eggs turned out to be rotten. So, so I think they've got to be careful um, uh, it, it, just by looking at the people that, that have succeeded. And, and when I, I also have a sort of role uh, on an investment committee for, for an IFA, and one of our main goals with diversification is to, is to stop our clients selling. Because in the long run, if you can stop your clients selling, they're going to make a decent return. They're going to be happy with you. And the big problem with uh, over-concentration in a portfolio is people will panic at the wrong time. You know, as, as sort of the adage is that, that most, most retail uh, um, investors, they 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 buy buy uh, they buy high and sell low. And our our goal when we construct portfolios 
support for retail customers is to make sure that they don't sell. And that's to us, we have to balance our diversification. We've got to make sure we're getting a decent return and just make sure people don't sell in the bad times. If you, just before we come to diversification, if you had to go all in on one asset and one asset alone, and we're recording this podcast at the end of August 2023. When I say one asset class, would it be Bitcoin? Would it be uranium? Would it be energy? Would it be gold? Would it be tech? What would your choice of asset, if you can only own one asset class? Oil. Oil, without a doubt. I think oil uh, captures quite a few of the issues that are out there at the moment. There's been an over-financialization of investments, a detachment from physical reality. Uh, I read various sort of uh, podcasts and just podcasts and substacks on oil. And I can't remember who said it the other day, but the governments have policies and nearly all government policies just end up being massive failures. And yet when governments sort of announce the Paris Accord or, or other green issues, people think, oh, well, the government's made an announcement. That's obviously going to be successful. And governments generally fail in almost everything they do or in the process of failing, waste an enormous amount of money. So I think oil, to me, captures being anti-big government, anti-sort uh, of intervention, uh, detachment of financial assets from the physical reality of the world, and uh, a, a secular a sort of investment opportunity where there's been massive underinvestment in the last 10 or 15 years based on a very sort of distorted view of our energy needs going forward. So Now, I wrote an article about uranium just yesterday, in fact, and one of the things I posted in the chart was in the article was a chart that showed the performance of gold against gold miners since the turn of the century. And, bizarre, you know, you're supposed to buy gold miners to give you leverage on the gold price. But in fact, gold has quite dramatically outperformed gold miners. And I argue that's because there's a million other ways you can own gold now. ETFs and bullion and gold money and online bullion dealers and futures and spread bets and options. And there's so many ways to own gold, you don't have to take on individual company risk. So that's why I argue why that's happened. But would you add, but that doesn't seem to have happened with oil producers. And so you would advocate, advocate owning oil companies rather than oil ETFs. Two or three years ago, when, when far dated oil futures were, I think, still in the 50s, I'd, I'd probably, it's very, it's quite hard to buy sort of oil futures several years out normally most, most sort of trading platforms a couple of years um so a few years ago when oil futures were quite low i'd really recommend investing in, in, in long dated oil futures but i think the curve now has flattened quite a bit and all companies are incredibly good value the the the, the, the world is absolutely full of oil companies trading on things trading on single digits and obviously you're getting share buybacks and dividends in the interim i think one thing that's happened in the oil um, industry that hasn't happened with gold miners is it's become unbelievably efficient and it's really adopted lots of lots of tech and all companies are they, especially in, in, in the states there's been so much technological advancement in extracting oil in in recent years and i don't think that's really happened with with gold miners they haven't really become as efficient in the same way that the oilers have well they're better than they were but i take your point um what about uh the offshore drillers um, I would, uh, offshore drilling is a very long-term business. Do you mean, do you mean the service companies that, yes. um, it's not something I'm, 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 I'm following. I think I'd much rather be invested in upstream businesses that actually produce the oil. I mean, there's always this story that 
that, you know, when there's a gold boom, you don't buy the gold miners, you buy the people that make picks and shovels. I think the value out there at the moment is in upstream, upstream oil production. You've got lots of Canadians and Americans with decades of inventory that are going to be producing enormous amounts of cash flow and their valuations are so good. That's where I'd be right, right now. Charlie, you have one asset class to put you, your wife, and your children's fortune into. What is that asset class? Well, I'm going to give two answers. And, um, I, and I think that the first one is a diversified equity basket. So the S&P 500, the FTSE, something like that. Because you've got to see 100 or 250. Um, uh, 250 if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, twist my ear. But, um, but actually that's, that, that's a sort of straightforward cargo roll answer. I totally agree with oil being a trade that you'd want to have additional emphasis on. I'm, I'm absolutely there. But my second answer, which is probably um, a bit more serious, and a, but a bit more edgy, um, is gold. And that is Bitcoin and gold, because it captures what John was just saying. So if you think about what gold is, it's a commodity. It's a monetary um, asset. It's a commodity. And it just so happens to have outperformed every single commodity over the last 10 or 20 years. So it just keeps on doing it. And so you might get a, you know, a run in nickel or lithium or something, and then it collapses, uranium or whatever. Gold just, just goes down a bit, and then, and then it goes up a lot. And then it goes down a bit, and it goes up a lot. Whereas the other commodities go up a lot, and they go down a lot. And yeah. it just keeps on happening. So, so I just sort of think, well, gold's a sort of uh, lazy man's way of playing commodities in that sense, because you just beat all the commodity trades. And the other side of the, uh, the bull trade is, is, is Bitcoin. And Bitcoin has beaten every single uh, tech theme, whether it's biotech or whether it's the, the cloud or uh, whether it's artificial intelligence. Bitcoin, you know, year on year, I mean, you occasionally have a bad year, uh, but the good years are so good that it's just left every single tech theme for dust. So if you can rebalance between gold and Bitcoin, then I think that is the ultimate clever and lazy person's trade because you're capturing the two most important things, the, the frontier of technology um, and the commodities that feed the planet. And you actually have a product called Bold, but UK investors can't buy it because of the glorious FCA and its regulations. Uh, we have a product and they can buy it, um, but, they, but they find it difficult to buy it because they've basically stopped it being made available to retail investors. So um, you, can, you can technically buy it, um, but, but it's hard to find it. Uh, how does one find it? Um, I can't really say, actually, on your podcast. It's in Europe, so the, so the ticker's um, uh, bold SW or bold GR, you know, Germany or, or Switzerland, there's bold USD, GBP. Um, there are lots and lots of these things. It's run by 21 shares. Um, but it's just it, you won't find it on UK platforms. It's on all the European platforms and the Asian platforms. So, so I would need a European broker. You need a European broker. How irritating. I, I just, as a little rant, go on. Well, can I have my little rant and then you go? I just find it extraordinary that Rishi Sunak, when he was Chancellor and George Osborne before him, we're going to turn the UK into a tech hub. We're going to make the UK the centre of the industries of the future, yada, yada. Meanwhile, the FCA just goes totally other, in the other direction and just makes all these um, crypto-related products inaccessible to, to mainstream investors and, in fact, makes crypto investing more dangerous as a result. And I just think, you know, if ever there was an example of the inconsistency at the heart of so much government, it's that. The, the Chancellor says one thing and the FCA does something else. I, th I think Char Charlie spoke, spoke, spoke a lot of sense. Uh, I'd maybe suggest having a boiled portfolio, which is a combination of Bitcoin, oil and gold. And I think that would really sort of encapsulate lots of ideas that I think we all share about 
maybe trying to be a little bit separate from government, realizing the incompetence of governments, just like we're saying that, you know, Boris or Rishi can make lovely announcements, but the, the actual reality of what gets implemented in practice and the, the detachment of government policies from government, yeah, government policies from physical reality is, you know, I think we're now getting to the extreme where governments really have no idea about how you're going to roll out the, you know, the, the green transition. It's, it's just cheap words. And to implement that physically, it's going to be it's going to be tricky. And this still conference the other day from the states, and and, and this 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 sort of quite thoughtful academic, he was a Spanish academic, was trying to sort of argue about different t- sorts of technology adaptation, the green transition. And the Americans are saying, look, we've just got a stack load of money to do hydrogen or to do this or to do that. So that's what we're doing. The government's giving us money. You know, in a way, it's, it's a sort of form of corruption. The government's giving out money. And you just cast aside your genuine ideas about how you can do adopt a green transition. You just go where the government money is. And I think that's why a, a boiled portfolio, uh, which is sort of an anti-government, anti-government intervention portfolio, might might be something to think about. Or if we're doing a diversification approach, that forming a large segment of a diversified portfolio going forward, that's a good idea. And the irony is a lot of that money, that government money, would have come from profits on the oil and gas sector. It mostly is borrowed. I mean, the American uh, uh, deficit is it what seven percent of GDP this year? You've got you've got an economy borrowing seven or eight percent of GDP yeah. with two percent growth. I mean, where's that? I mean, Charlie knows more than me, but how come that end except in tears? Well, I mean, uh, I know we're talking about a hundred year portfolio here, but two percent growth. The Atlanta Fed GDP now cast is forecasting five and a half percent growth. I don't know what the hell's happening with the data right now. You know, it's a funny old thing, but I think we probably don't want to be, don't want to be focusing too much on the present. But there is just definitely past the world where there's overheating in the economy. Well, I'm sure you, dear listener, will be delighted to know that I support uh, gold and I support Bitcoin and I support oil. And I think I'm right in saying, therefore, that all three of those assets are going to be in the portfolio and we'll decide just how much to allocate to them um, later in the programme. Now, the the more portfolio, the 25% here, the 25% there, the 25%, uh, you know, four quarters, um, one of those quarters will be allocated to real estate. And most of us own real estate, um, either the house that we live in or we own a buy-to-let or, uh, you know, we're heir to some real estate from our parents or or we might have some real estate trusts. Um now, this is in a do-nothing portfolio. One of the reasons why real estate has done so well is it's it's not, particularly if you own it yourself, it's not easy to trade. So you tend to hold on to it. You buy it with a little bit of leverage with a mortgage. And then over a 10 or 20 year period, that leverage works in your favor. The problem is higher rates and mean that that leverage is now a big, big problem. And my view is a lot of that the problems in the real estate market have been forecast into tradable real estate, real estate stocks, the home builders, the real estate trusts and so on, even if it hasn't filtered through to the actual housing market yet. Um, so for me, real estate is an avoid, uh, even though longer term it should make up part of a portfolio. What do you gents think? And we'll start with you, Charlie. I think that um, I agree. The most important determinant of real estate prices, I've always believed, is interest rates. And of course, supply and demand um, can can work um, 
um, definitely slightly to the to the industry cycle. If you've got a very fast growing city, then other things can can take place. Or if you've got a big oversupply, for example, to Spain in two thousand and eight, you know the holiday destinations, then that you know interest rates went down, but the the, the the property went down much much faster. So I think there are considerations to, that you need to take into account. But we've had a collapse in the bond market these last two or three years, and we're yet to see a collapse in um, in, in real estate prices are falling. But at the label, we've got a stall in transactions. So no one wants to admit their house went down. So if you're trying to sell your house, then then you know the price that you want is is not coming down very quickly. And if you're a buyer, you're a bit cockier and you'll say, well, I'm going to put in a bid that's 10 or 20% below. And what happens first is nothing. There's no action. There is a, a dried up market. You lose liquidity. And also, you know, a lot of people have got fixed rate mortgages and so on. They take time to roll off. In Europe, that'll be quite quick. You know, within five years from two years ago, we'll start to see uh, most people will have lost those fixed rates. They're now going to be biting. That's going to put downward pressure on prices. But in the States, it can go on for much longer. Uh, they, you know, the, the, the American fixed rate mortgage has gone for 30 years as they're still paying very low rates. But of course, no one's going to move because you'll lose that mortgage. Uh, the, the final piece of the answer is the listed sector. So listed house builders, um, they're actually probably trading below book value in most cases, i.e. below the land value. Assuming the land doesn't fall, which I probably will, then 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 they're okay. But they're on super normal um, uh, margins because of government schemes to buy property. So I think there's a bit of a problem there. There's a huge excitement with U.S. house builders. I wouldn't touch those either. But listed, this is a real estate investment trust, the REITs um, in the U.K. They're basically trading at half half price, and so you know if the property's trading at hundred, the shares are trading at fifty, sort of thing. Discount and nav. Discount and nav. Yeah, about fifty percent discount and nav. And how how far are they down from their highs? Fifty percent. Ah, okay. Yeah, right. In other words, because the, the underlying real estate hasn't been marked down yet. Correct. Or, or not enough, or, or it's probably been marked out a bit, but probably not enough. So is that then forecasting a 50% correction in property price? Yes. Yes. Or, but it's not just that. There's also a liquidity issue. And so, you know, anything like that, um, infrastructure or, or uh, property or, you know, um, um, those energy funds you know, related to wind or so, and all of those things are suffering liquidity problems. Because you had a very buoyant market in recent years, and now you know, the best is behind us, and so there's just li- there's little activity, so you get discounts as an outcome of that. How high do you think interest rates go? Um, well, given the data, we're you know technically we're going to recession, um, but this is the most over forecast recession in the history of the world. Everyone's been saying it for the last eighteen months we're going to recession, so you start to believe it, and we're still not there in the UK. In the U- in the US, we're definitely not there, um, and as I mentioned a moment ago the GDP now forecasts are, are going up. And so it's, it's like there are parts of the economy that are on fire, probably AI and that sort of thing. Uh, but there are definitely two economies. You know, I do think that the average poor person is doing very well at all. And I think they are being squeezed. Um, but I think that it's a rich man's world. The financial markets care much more about what the rich are up to than the poor. Where do interest rates go? Um, I didn't ask your question, did I, Dominic? <laughs> uh, I don't really know. But they're probably, they're probably going up a little bit further. But in the UK, I mean, ten, fifteen percent, like in the in the seventies. I don't at this point. I mean, if that's going to happen, that will happen. You know, there'll be a down cycle and another up cycle. You know, I don't think it's going to happen quickly to get to those numbers, if ever. Um, but the bottom line is that interest rates and long term interest rates in the UK are about the same. Yeah, in America, the long term interest rates are about a percent and a bit below um, short term interest rates. So, if the American economy is stronger than we expect, which is looking like the case. Then those long-term interest rates 
have got a long way to rise, you know, percent and a half, 2% more than they currently are. And that could be really devastating for asset prices. And that's a sort of 1987 scenario that's raising its head. You know, you have a big nasty sell-off in the bond market and the stock market has a, a wily coyote moment, you know. John, real estate? Uh, right now, I'd, I'd leave it alone. I think in the developed world, like in the UK, we don't think of, we think real estate in the sense of listed properties. And really, the only return you're going to get is hopefully the NAV increases slightly over time and you get a dividend yield. If, as you know, I spent several months a year in New Zealand, if you're in New Zealand, real estate means something completely different because you're a private individual, you're buying quotes in the path of progress. And you're buying land and you're looking at really quite big returns on land as it gets rezoned. And so in that sort of speculative area, if you can find assets to invest in on an individual way, which is maybe not in the fight, this is obviously not for a, the sort of portfolio you were constructing, but if you can find assets to invest in where you're investing in the path of progress, where you're going to see uh, perhaps multiple increases in the value of land, that is one form of real estate that I think is worth looking at, but it's Possibly not something you're going to find in the UK. When it comes to the UK, infrastructure trusts and real estate have been absolutely decimated. I think this is all to do with with, with bond yields. Um, why on earth you would uh, build a solar farm or a uh, a wind farm right now when you can buy uh, uh, infrastructure trusts on sort of 25 to 35 percent discounts? I don't know. Uh, that's why, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm really keen on oil. But right now, I'd I think the interest rate scenario we have is so volatile i may be buying to some very very heavily discounted infrastructure property trust but i wouldn't expect decent returns going going you know going forwards five percent maybe hope, hoping there's a bit of a an uptick and, and uh, margin um, discount compression on the discount enoughs okay so presumably listed property will bottom out before privately bought it privately traded uh, property because you know, there's all the forward thinking in that in that price. And I'm going to say that, so the listed property is probably closer to its low than the, than the residential property market itself, but it's not quite a buy yet. And therefore, are we going to have no real estate apart from what we already own in our, in our portfolio? Well, listed real estate is much less risky than, than, than um, physical real estate, as you just said. Totally agree with that. It might be that it's okay to buy on a you know five-year basis, but I think short term it's just going to be volatile and subject to to swings about the latest rumours in um, interest rates. You know, we're really about half a mile from the Bank of England, aren't we, Dominic? Yeah. And um, you know what do they know about interest rates? Not much, but unfortunately they're in charge of them, and uh, they don't know what they're doing. Then then how can we possibly forecast um, you know what's actually going to be the outcome? It's the bottom line is house prices in this country, in Canada, in Australia, and many other places are through the roof. They're far too high. And um, and I think that long-term um, generation adjustment has to take place one day. It may as well be now. Thank you for listening. And to hear the rest of the show in full, please upgrade your subscription. <laughs>